everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Stephen Munkelt from California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So can you tell us a bit about what California's uh, California Attorneys for Criminal Justice is and what you guys do? Uh, CACJ is the Statewide Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So our members are either attorneys in private practice, uh, public defenders, or people handling appointed cases, or related professionals like private investigators and experts. Um, we have two primary missions, I guess. One is to seek uh, change in the in the criminal justice system uh, to make it more just and fair. Um, and the other is to keep our members and other criminal defense attorneys educated uh, and uh, able to carry out the very best representation of those accused of crime. And, and what is your background and how did you get into this line of work? Well, um, to go all the way back, I was born in San Diego in 1950, grew up in the 60s and 70s where there was really a renaissance of music, an alternative culture of hippies, peace and love, at the same time as a war of aggression in Vietnam. President Kennedy was assassinated when I was in middle school. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated when I was in high school. Um, I attended college at UC Santa Barbara, where in my sophomore year, the Bank of America was burned down in a protest. Um, and later that same year, the police shot a student to death on the steps of the replacement bank building. Uh, there were sit-ins and strikes, including uh, the, the runway at the Santa Barbara Municipal Airport was shut down uh, by protesters who swarmed onto the field uh, on the day that the invasion of Cambodia was announced. Um, I studied sociology, criminology, anthropology, and psychology. Um, and outside class, I became uh, chair of the Student Communications Board uh, in charge of the budget and management of the student newspaper, radio station, yearbook, uh, student communications. And for a time I served as chair of the Isla Vista Community Council, uh, which was a, a semi-official um, uh, group to manage the, the unique problems of the 
mostly student community next to UC Santa Barbara, including what do you do about uh, dog do uh, in a community that's very high population density. Um, through all of the study and drama and stress, I was always considering what's my career path and eventually my interest in civil rights, social justice, and our American ideals of equality and justice for all uh, led me to apply to law school. I attended the University of San Diego School of Law. And in my second and third years during law school, I served as student coordinator of the welfare law clinic, working at the Legal Aid Society and representing people in administrative hearings involving welfare benefits and disability benefits. Then in 1978, after passing the bar, I was hired at Defenders Inc., the private precursor to a public defender program. And in four years there, I progressed from handling welfare fraud cases to handling assault, rape, murder, all kinds of serious felonies. Went into private practice in 1983, moved to Nevada City in the Sierra Foothills in 1987 with my wife and young children, where I've handled both private and court-appointed criminal cases for the last 37 years. Um, in 2019, I took on the position as executive director of CACJ and, uh, and basically began closing down my private practice in order to handle the responsibilities of a statewide organization. So um, I'm wondering, you know, um, what the big issues that uh, CACJ are, are, are concerned about right now. Well, um, my career uh, pretty much overlays a period of uh, political overcriminalization through campaigns that were commonly called the war on drugs and the war on crime. And uh, from 1978 to 2010 about, we, we as a community, California um, ramped up punishment and the, and the uh, incarceration of individuals for crime to such a degree that, um, you know, by 2010, the United States had 2% of our population locked up. Um, and with 4% of the world's population, we had 25% of the inmates in the world, um, indicating that we're the most punitive nation in the world, even including dictatorships and uh, authoritarian regimes like Russia and China and so forth. Um, so needless to say, during all that period, uh, while I was a member of CACJ, the organization has been working against those, uh, those efforts to try to make the system more fair and more rational. With the criminal justice system, which is dedicated to the primary purpose of punishing people for wrongdoing, we really lose um, so many opportunities to reform people and achieve better behavior uh, without uh, convictions and incarcerations. Uh, punishment, you know, if you're a parent or if you remember being a child, being punished was one way to try and correct behavior. But there are many others, including classroom learning, mentoring, um, uh, you know, uh, just establishing opportunities uh, so people can step forward and do things in a better way for themselves. Uh, all of those are 
alternative methods of seeking good behavior from individuals and in many ways are much more powerful than just punishment, which in the criminal justice system means primarily incarceration. Um, Fortunately, over the last 10 years, we've gradually begun uh, a rollback on some of those extreme positions and extreme um, focus on incarceration. Um, and CACJ in California has been one of the leading voices in the legislature to bring about those kinds of changes, to help see that uh, drug crimes, which were treated as felonies, even at a very low level, are now misdemeanors and rarely result in jail time, but are focused more on treatment um, and uh, changing the, uh, trying to change the um, day in and day out procedures that are used in courts and in trials to make them more fair. Um, I feel like um, there's a big kind of misperception uh, um, going on right now that, you know, the only way to punish people, the only way to deal with crimes is to actually lock somebody in a cage. And, you know, there are probably, you know, a small percentage of people that are, are a true danger to the community and really do need to be locked away for the safety of everyone. Um, but most people, that's not needed and it's actually um, works against the goal of kind of getting people to the point where they can kind of, you know, get a job and be able to, uh, um, you know, live a normal life. You just articulated the main reason why I ended up in criminal justice and being a criminal defense lawyer. Um, the, when I started out in 1978, we were just at the beginning of the war on crime phase of our politics. And at that time, California had about 30,000 people locked up in state prison. And as I began to handle cases and see what was done, you know, with convictions and where people went and how many went to prison, it was pretty obvious to me that they, we were sending to people to prison then that didn't really need prison. They needed other things to help them make a better life for themselves and everybody else. Um, so that was 30,000 people in 1978. By 1998, 20 years later, we had 160,000 people in state prison. And only a minuscule percentage of those people really need to be there, um, in, my, in my view and my practice, and working with them and seeing the kinds of people that we send off to prison, um, and seeing what alternatives uh, there are to reform behavior Obviously, abuse of drugs is one huge issue and bad behavior, um, but uh, long-term treatment um, and support is much more effective uh, and much less expensive uh, than locking people up. Um, so uh, we, we really should be, in, in the interest of justice, uh, pursuing many more alternatives and far less prison terms. Yeah, and one of the things I worry about is that, um, and, and we've kind of seen this in places like San Francisco of all places, that um, you know the public is kind of at the point where okay, we're okay with uh, 
uh, reform until uh, crime starts showing up at, at our door and then we panic. How do we get past that reaction by the public? The, the, to the lock them up reaction? Yeah. Um, well, ed, education is the real answer, but all the, all the different ways that people can be educated. But um, that, those efforts today and for the last 40 years have been hampered greatly by the political sense that people in public life can have personal benefit by advocating for extreme criminal justice outcomes. Um, and that happens both because of individual events that catch, capture the public uh, attention and are, are then turned into criminal justice initiatives like Megan's Law, um, or because uh, individual politicians just say, well, my people will vote for me if I increase the penalties for theft. My people will vote for me if I increase the penalties for sex offenses, and so on and so on. Um, so with the, those um, individuals who feel it's their personal benefit to push these ineffective, expensive policies, um, it's very hard to get the information out about how uh, poor the outcomes are when you pursue those policies and why you need to do things another way. Yeah, and I think that's that that's really the key is that the outcomes that we're getting and the expense that we pay for those outcomes are not what people think they are. No, uh, you know, I, my recollection is that currently the average cost in the state for holding someone in jail for a year runs about $50,000 and the average cost of holding an inmate in prison for a year runs about $100,000. And, um, and we see, we now have 40 years of data for sociologists and, and other academics to study and tell us what outcomes we bring about by those policies. And, and basically we end up with people whose ability to function in society is broken by their time in prison instead of being uh, supported into a productive lifestyle, uh, which, which is what we can do for many of those people at a cost far less than $50,000 a year. Well, to, to put that into perspective, one of my favorite stats is we spend more per year to lock someone in a cage than we do per year to educate them at Harvard. Now, which one has the better bang for the buck, right? The, the social value of the education is far greater than the, than the benefit from incarcerating. So, um, you know, to kind of shift gears a little bit, um, can you kind of talk about, you know, what your work looks like on, on kind of a daily basis? Um, on a daily basis, I try to run herd on our educational programs and our legislative program. Um, we have a very 
small staff to run an, a, a statewide organization. There's myself and two other paid employees um, and about 1,200 members and roughly 3,000 or so people who may have attended or, or could attend our programs and, and be interested in our educational output. So day-to-day, um, -day, it's usually dealing with keeping the wheels turning. Um, I, I view myself as sort of the hub of the CACJ wheel. And almost everything that's accomplished by the organization is accomplished by our member attorneys who get involved in the board of governors um, and or on our committees, our legislative committee and so on and so on. Um, and, and they're all hardworking, to, some would say overworked uh, attorneys who volunteer additional time uh, to carry out these activities, to make this organization run and to try to fulfill their own ideals of equality and justice uh, in California. What would you consider to be some of the recent successes of uh, CACJ? We contributed to the, to the passage of the Racial Justice Act uh, which is a legislative effort about three years ago now that uh, is seeing some some uh, benefits in the in the justice system. Racial discrimination that you can prove by the statistical outcomes of a large number of cases can be very hard to identify or correct in an individual case as it's going on. And the Racial Justice Act helped uh, create more tools. To, to do that in early on in, in litigation. Uh, we also, CACJ sponsored uh, a reform of jury selection procedures um, under AB 3070, uh, which uh, it is also targeted at trying to eliminate racial discrimination in particular, but any kind of discrimination in jury selection processes. Um, and, um, Let's see, we've, we've uh, helped change the definition of crimes. For example, um, in drug crimes, uh, California has broken uh, drug crimes into simple possession, possession with the intent to sell, sale, um, and then manufacturing. So the possession, intent to sell, and sale statutes, there's different ones for different kinds of drugs. So there's one set of statutes that apply to methamphetamine and similar drugs. There's another set that applies to uh, opiates and, and marijuana and so on. Well, we authored a change in the law that is fairly called the sales statutes, uh, which, which prohibited selling importing, transporting, or several other uh, you know, adverbs about what you could do with drugs on a commercial level. But our courts had interpreted the word transportation in the sales statute to include personal transportation of small amounts. So a person who was stopped in their car and a law enforcement found a small personal use quantity of say methamphetamine in the car, that person would be charged under the sales statute as a felony because they were moving it, they were transporting it. 
And it was the same with a person who was riding a bicycle or walking down the street. If they found meth in your pocket, you'd get charged with a felony. Um, and the same for marijuana and everything else. Well, we went back and corrected that, what we thought was a misinterpretation by the courts by, by having the law amended so that it now says transportation in this statute means transportation for the purpose of sale. And all of a sudden, hundreds, if not thousands of people every year were charged with misdemeanor possession crimes instead of felony, essentially sales crimes. So that a few examples of our work. That's a real big deal. Um, I remember when I first started doing this, uh, my DA, um, this was pre-Prop 47, so uh, drug possession was still a felony, but the DA would basically double charge every single drug case. Um, they, they would charge possession and transportation. So instead of facing one felony, they were facing two felonies. And, um, you know, that was kind of, uh, that was a really big deal uh, that a lot of people put pressure on the DA to stop that practice. And then, um, you know, they started uh, because they opposed Prop 47. So they used that loophole to charge transportation on minute quantities of drugs um, to, to get it to be a felony. Um, in the other um, area, which is really abused, is uh, the felony uh, conspiracy to commit a misdemeanor charge. That's been used in some jurisdictions, uh, particularly with marijuana offenses, where uh, Prop 64 reduced pretty much everything to misdemeanors. And, and so the, uh, some DAs have tried to bootstrap it back into felony territory by calling it conspiracy to commit a misdemeanor. And although that's been a longstanding feature of conspiracy law in California, it's really, in, in particular in that situation, it's just not fair at all. Yeah, I mean, it seems like if it's misdemeanor conduct, it shouldn't be like a felony to like inspire with somebody, but uh, you know, that was one of the oddities of California law. Every year we have, um, we have a lobbyist that we work with and we have a legislative committee and, and every year the legislative committee is reviewing somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred bills. Um, in, in recent years, when some criminal justice reform bills have been possible, um, because for many years they weren't possible, um, we usually have two to four bills that we draft and find a legislator to carry and that sort of thing. But in addition to those sponsored bills, we, we review and take a position on, give or take a hundred bills every year. Um, and uh, over time, uh, I think that makes a significant impact by um, helping to kill bills that are really bad and you know, punishment oriented and, and get uh, progressive changes like uh, addressing racial inequities and, and things of that nature. Now you brought up the Racial Justice Act and we've had Ash Kalra on, on this show in the past. That was a groundbreaking bill a couple of years ago. Um, 
now there, there's a second part to that because the original bell, um, the retrospective part uh, was removed from the legislation. Um, has, has the second part made any advance or, or has it died in this bad climate? I am not familiar with any of the atmosphere in the legislature about whether there's uh, some positive change that could come back in there. But uh, I am aware of the attorneys all over the state who are litigating under the RJA and making real progress. Um, it, it's, a, it's always an uphill push to bring change. Uh, but people are making public record acts requests to get data to bring the ch challenges and and uh, over time it's going to bring uh, significant change to how we view the system and and the way it really functions on the ground. Yeah, and you also brought up jury selection, which has always been a big concern because you know you. You, uh, if you watch court, and we we put uh, somewhere between twenty and fifty people in the court across the state every day, um, and one of the things that you notice is that um, the jury pool does not match up to the people that are actually being charged with crimes and facing prison time, um, and. You know that that's always been a big concern that you know that there's a generic notion of jury of our peers, but um, in practice that doesn't work that way. No, there's there are significant barriers to having a truly representative jury. One of the biggest barriers is financial. Um, this is something I was involved in legislative efforts 40 years ago to try and increase juror compensation, uh, which they made a little headway for a while. And then with financial trouble for the state, they got rolled back again. But this year, finally, we're seeing again a positive move, which is supported by the courts and the Judicial Council to increase juror compensation um, so that people can serve without suffering financial hardship. I mean, a, a one-day jury trial is not likely to cause a great financial hardship to anybody, but that's not the norm. That's three to five to, to, to longer periods of time that people are off work or required to pay for parking in downtown areas and buy lunch and all the things that, that make a barrier to low-income people participating. And of course, our society is biased in, in providing income across different social groups. So the poor tend to be a higher percentage of people of color um, and the well-to-do tend to be higher percentage of whites. So it's less of a challenge for the white population to show up for jury duty. And therefore you get multiple stages of Overrepresentation of one segment of the population, underrepresentation of others. Um, so, uh, a direct uh, step towards for fixing that would be to establish real compensation, so that people are not out of pocket when they're doing our our community the tremendous service of sitting on a jury.
and we know like San Francisco's done a pilot um, where um, they have a, a system where um, low income jurors can uh, receive up to $100, but for the average person, it's what, $20 a day or something like that? Well, currently it's $5 a day. Oh. <laughs> Which it's doesn't even cover a half hour parking, you know? <laughs> so ha has any other jurisdiction other than San Francisco made progress on that? Um, well, it, the, there is a bill in the legislature and uh, that, that would make some progress. And um, I was actually in a conference with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court last week, uh, who said that's one of her priorities as well. So there, there will be some change. And of course, that kind of change is most likely to happen in a year like this one, where there's a budget surplus for the state rather than a shortfall. But we'll see. Yeah, although I'm getting nervous about next year. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, yeah, I'm, I understand. All right. Um, well, we're just about out of time. Um, but are, are there other um, issues on the horizon that you guys are going to be pushing? Well, the, you know, there was some attempt at bail reform. Um, and without going to the, the complicated history of the politics of that, uh, we ended up without any legislative bail reform at this point. We, we did see a very positive opinion out of the state Supreme Court reaffirming that what I've always believed are the constitutional rules favoring that a person should be at liberty prior to their conviction um, and, and making it, uh, imposing some particular standards on the courts for uh, making sure that people are released when they should be after being accused of a crime, but before the conviction. And um, we have legislative proposals that we've been talking to the various members of the legislature about for three years now. Um, and we, we haven't been able to uh, get someone to actually sponsor it and, and put it forward yet, partly because of uh, the failed effort to do a reform which was then uh, set aside by the referendum. Um, but, uh, but that's a significant factor because roughly 75,000 people in jail in California on an average day and 80% of those people have not been convicted yet. They're, they're in pretrial detention. So they're, they've lost their jobs. In many cases, they've lost their home. Their relationships with family and friends uh, are, are severely impacted or ended. Uh, all kinds of terrible outcomes for these people, most of whom uh, could safely be in the community uh, while they're waiting for their case to be resolved or go to trial. Yeah, bail reform um, is one of these issues. I just wrote an article this morning on uh, a proposal out of LA to continue uh, their zero bail. And one of the things that um, happens is that anytime that somebody's uh, been released, um, you know, pre-trial, 
and they go out and commit um, a horrible crime, it's very easy for law enforcement uh, and the tough on crime uh, folks to, you know, really uh, hammer that issue. But the problem is, is that money bail doesn't offer any protection to the community. Um, all it basically does is say, if you're too poor, you're going to stay in custody. Um, and if you're wealthy enough to put down the 10%, uh, that, then you can be released. Well, just because you're wealthy enough to put that down doesn't mean that you're not a risk to the community. Right. It, it really is a punitive measure on the poor. The poor get held in custody. They lose their jobs. They lose their houses. Uh, sometimes they lose their, their families. Um, and sometimes they're forced to take bad deals because they're trying to get out. Um, and the wealthy can buy their freedom. Yes, and, and I will say that our, our Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Tani Kantel Sakai, um, is uh, a believer of that, of that fact about our system and understands. So um, obviously the court is not a, a proactive uh, player in the, in the bail reform custody reform measures, but uh, it's good to know that at the very top of the system, there's an understanding that we can't just lock people up because they're poor. Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, just that um, in the criminal justice system, um, we have gone to very extreme measures over the last 40 years and are only beginning the rollback to more rational policies. Um, but uh, I have been encouraged, especially over the last seven or eight years in our movement towards equity uh, in the justice system. And I, and I will keep working to see that it continues in that direction. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and, and, and sharing your uh, experience in the system and the work of CACJ. Thank you for having me. All right. Steve Munkel from the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, CACJ. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.